Hi, beautiful listeners. Welcome to the Teacher Healer podcast, where we get to geek out on all things education and heal the world at the same time. Today, I'm joined by Margaret Thorsborn, who was recently awarded an Order of Australia Medal for her service to education. Margaret was a pioneer of restorative practices and played an important role in introducing it into schools, first in Australia and New Zealand in the 90s and later in the UK. She has since trained conference facilitators in schools in education, community, police and justice sectors across Australia, Asia, New Zealand, Britain, the USA and Canada. She remains involved in this important reform in schools, working alongside government bodies and agencies across the world as a recognised expert in the field of restorative practices in schools and workplaces. Listen to us dig deeper into the healing power of restorative practices and discuss the many flow and effects from taking a relational approach to behaviour development. Margaret. Hello. Hi, it's great to have you here. Um, I just wanted to first start out with congratulations on your recent Order of Australia medal. How does it feel to be appreciated and rewarded for all of your hard work over the years? Well, there are a couple of things about that. First of all, when I was notified by someone from Government House in Canberra, I thought it was a hoax. So I actually (laughs) had to ring them to see whether whether it was real or not. And then after that I thought, ah, there's no way, no one to man that I'd ever qualify. But then, you know, as as the months wore on in in early January, I was notified that I'd been successful. So that just started a huge smile on my insides, really. Um, Yeah, it was... um, uh, you know, I think I think it's it's really about um, being recognised for the hard work, and uh, and in particular with this kind of work, it's finally about reaching through teachers and educators generally, many many thousands of kids in a different approach to problem solving. So that's why the smile is still here. And, of course, it's triggered (laughs) some um, interesting activities like shopping for an outfit and the appropriate shoes (laughs) for my presentation at Government House in Brisbane, you know, down the track. So that's that's also making me smile a lot. (laughs) So what's your criteria for your outfit? Uh, well, first of all, it's got to be able to cope with having a metal pill pinned on it so it can't be too <laughs> flimsy. And secondly, it's got to look professional. But oh, I, was, I actually started with the shoes, which, of course, is an important place to start. And I found shoes on sale, which was even better. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. The things you don't think about, but, yeah, it's yeah. all very important, isn't yeah, it? It is. It is really so you've you've received this award for your work in restorative practices, and mm. um, I we don't need to go too much into the basics of what that is. I think most teachers by now have heard about it if they're not implementing it in their schools already. And you've got a gorgeous TED talk as well that talks a bit about it. But 
why do you think that restorative practices is something that has resonated so strongly with you over the years? Look, I guess uh, I guess for me it is my early experience as a professional educator so that my original um, qualifications were in science, so I have a science degree and then, um, you know, post-grad stuff for teaching. But um, it, it, so my... It's always that that plus my interest in um, a kind of working with kids to see how they tick, which was what moved me into school counselling. So it was the biology and the school counselling patch and my training as a mediator that really... Um, I just felt that when I met this work around restorative that all the ducks had lined up and everything I'd had ever done professionally kind of just, well, here it was. Mm, It all just came together. It just came together. And I have to say that right in the beginning I knew it was extraordinary, but the years have taught me how extraordinary. So I never expected, for example, that my early movement into restorative, which was really about how do we deal with serious things in schools, could possibly start a revolution, not just here in Australia but elsewhere around the world where there were other people like me discovering the same thing. So sort of like... You know, all evolving at the same time, and then finally, finally discovering something so profoundly important that it changes your life. And I describe it as being hit like a bolt of really good lightning. (laughs) Amazing. So, was it a case of a bit of being in the right place at the right time, meeting the right people, or like how did you fall into it? Well, I was working for the education department in Queensland at this point and a colleague, Mary Hindman, and I uh, within the guidance and special ed branch were asked to develop a a continuum of practice around how does a school uh, respond to bullying so we could handle the small stuff but the really serious things that were, you know, terribly harmful when you when all you're using is what you have, which is the traditional kind of uh, suspension or stand down or detention or something response, it just makes things worse for the people who've been harmed by the bullying. So, you know, to find a different way forward that would be both safe for the kid who was responsible and safe for the kid that harmed was um, just like manna from heaven. And, mm. of course, um, uh, you know, while we might have been triggered to do this work around instances of bullying, it could be applied to anything of a serious nature that had been schooled, anything at all, from kids who, you know, have a violent conflict out in the playground to um, uh, acts of cruelty to you know, the the little lizard dragons that might have been in um, the school pond or 
you know, horrific uh, these days, online, um, you know, trolling and so on. It was that back in the day. That wasn't that wasn't an issue. But really serious stuff that would trigger a suspension, a stand down, or an exclusion was uh, just a fascinating exercise. And so when we got some funding to um, explore whether or not something that existed in youth justice would it would would it, would it survive the um, transformation into schools? The answer was absolutely yes. Yes, yes. yes. Was it the New South Wales Police were yeah. using? It, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So, so in particular, um, the New South Wales Police were very interested in what had been happening in youth justice in New Zealand, and it ended up that you know a command in Wagga Wagga in New South Wales, headed up by then Senior Sergeant Terry O'Connell was using this to train other police to do restorative cautions to keep kids out of the criminal justice setting. And when we heard about that, it just was a perfect fit, or what we thought was a perfect fit, and it Mm. turned out to be the case. Provided it's done properly, I have to keep saying, provided it's done properly. Well, yeah, I want to ask you about that because I Mm. think now it's so much a part of the vernacular um, mm. and a lot of schools, I know most of the schools I've worked in have implemented to some degree, um, but it, it can feel a bit like a checkbox sometimes and we can take it a little bit for granted. So asking from the horse's mouth, as it were, mm-hmm. you know, why do you believe that restorative practices is so powerful in schools? Uh, it's powerful when we can get the mind shift uh, heads and hearts with the adults in the school community because there's a lot of um, there are a lot of myths around what's the best way to change or develop behaviour, and so the old traditional thinking has always been about if you punish a kid, then they'll learn not to do that. But I don't think you get enough bang for your buck for that. So what we're really in the business of these days, I think, is behaviour development. And um, I don't think there's a a teacher now, uh, you know, in this day and age who doesn't understand that we're not there just to teach a subject, we're there to teach kids. Hmm. And, um, And it's not just about equipping them for a university course or an apprenticeship or a job, but it's about about what we need to do to help, along with parents or sometimes in spite of families, how to teach them to be a decent human being. Mm. So, uh, you know, the thing I learned, the most powerful thing I learned um, after training heaps and heaps and heaps of people over the years is that training teachers doesn't necessarily change the culture in a school. So when we finally realised that we were, we were working with schools in a way that resulted in a change of the way we do business with kids. So this approach is a philosophy. And, of course, there are practices, you know, to support the philosophy, but it's a philosophy uh, you know, that moves away from the myths around behaviour change. It moves towards 
understanding that we're warm-blooded hairy mammals, that's my biology speaking, and uh, that we thrive when we're in right and good relationship. And, And even that is true in a classroom. So if kids feel safe with each other and they feel safe with the teacher and the teacher's kind and compassionate and has very high expectations but uh, is not intent on punishment, then uh, you get closer to that ideal of helping develop the whole human being. That's mm. why I think this stuff is so very powerful. But it does, it does require for some of us, and certainly I didn't ever question notions of punishment when I was in a classroom back when the earth was cooling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I never, but but I guess as a natural, I I didn't have much problem with behaviour because I just loved kids and the relationship that I had with them. I, I hadn't even thought about any of that, but I just instinctively guessed, as many teachers do, that the quality of the relationship is everything. Absolutely everything. Yeah, yeah. It, I I guess I have wondered for a little while about what makes a good teacher and how you train anybody to be like anybody can go and apply for a teacher, but there seemed to always be this X factor that some teachers had that made them more amazing than others, or more yeah. natural at it, or found it yeah. easier. And I, that's probably what it is, actually, isn't it? It's just relationships. Well, I think so, but. But, uh, I mean, one of the myths about restorative practice is that it's too soft, that all a kid has to do is uh, be in a meeting, apologise, and then maybe there'll be a cup of tea at the end of it and so they haven't suffered enough, which is Mm. Alfie Conn's definition of punishment is what we do to make someone else suffer. So um, I know from my own personal experience of facilitating many, many restorative processes that uh, the kids who are responsible if the process is done with adequate preparation and done with skill, that that process is um, uh, the punishment itself. Why is that? Well, because kids are made accountable face-to-face. They have to be able to explain themselves. They've got to explain how come the behaviour happened, what they were seeking to achieve with the behaviour. They're then asked to talk about what they think the impact of the behaviour has been, not just on the other kid or the other kids, but their families and their own families Mm. and the impact on the teachers that matter to them. You know, and then because this process of problem solving is so inclusive that everyone who's in the problem needs to be involved in the problem solving. So everyone has a voice. The people harmed, the supporters of people harmed, the supporters of the kids responsible. And when you, when everyone's had a chance to tell their bit of the story, it's like a giant. They've added their piece to a giant jigsaw puzzle and then we reach this shared understanding of the harm. We can make sense of how come it's happened. So that 
that sort of giving voice to this is how come I did it and this is what it's been like for me, you know, the both sides of the coin, that provides profound relief to people so that they can metabolise or unburden themselves of the weight of the kind of toxic impact. And um, I, I think it's a fantastic process for transforming the shame and distress that everyone feels as a result of an incident of harm. You just said the shame that everyone yeah. feels. Can you yeah. unpack that a little bit? Well, the wrongdoer is going to feel shame because they've A, been busted, and secondly, as the process unfolds, they they get to realise the extent of the harm that their behaviour has caused. And um, so it's a, um, I, I, I guess, to distinguish this from, from um, you know, from toxic versions of shame, we want them to feel bad about what they've done <laughs> because that will trigger the need to make things right. Mm. And then when, when we talk about the people who have been shamed because of what's happened, uh, you know, with my own experiences, which I talk about in my TED Talk about being bullied at school, I was so diminished by that and stayed diminished by it, so shamed and, yeah, diminished is the best word, I guess. Um, so shamed by that, that it affected the way I thought about myself for decades. And had we had a process that would have helped me unburden myself about that back when I was, you know, a teenager, that I, I wouldn't have had to have beaten myself up the way I did. It's a really interesting point because I think when we think of restorative practices, we only usually think about the impact it has on the the person who's done the action that's mm. led us here and and how it impacts them with, you know, not being a retributive system and punishing and things like mm. that, but actually the impact that this can have for someone who's the victim of harm is something I haven't thought too much about myself. Um, mm. And when we punish perpetrators, we don't actually then give adequate um, help exactly. and support for the victim. It's sort of done as this separate thing. But yeah. but I know, like, I have read stories where, you know, if someone's killed someone's son in a car accident, they'll often strike up a relationship with that person's parents because they've gone forth and apologised and tried to mend that relationship and then it's been one of the most impactful things that they've done in their lives for both parties. Yeah. So it, it does sort of make sense. I just haven't really yeah. considered it before. It's a, a process that makes healing possible. And it's not mm -hmm. just healing who, who you would regard as the primary victim, like the kid who's been harmed. But when, uh, when harm is done to my child, it's also done to me if I'm a parent. Mm. And if my own child does something wrong, there is harm done to me as a parent as well. So we can just simply make the assumption about the nature of harm 
that it's very easily caused to anyone who is in the situation that they would find themselves in a school or, you know, in the criminal justice system, in youth justice or um, adult justice. Mm. It's extraordinarily powerful when it's done properly. Yeah. So so you said you've been talking a bit about healing and I guess my question is, you know, I know I've been doing some research on risk and protective factors lately Mm -hmm. about aggressive behaviours and and things like that. And I guess I'm curious, um, you know, some of these behaviours where someone might do harm to someone else comes from a place of trauma and then Mm -hmm. it can create trauma as well. So do you think that this restorative model has the power to heal trauma? And Look, I think there's a huge, uh, a huge capacity to integrate uh, in terms of trauma-informed practice with restorative practice. And, in fact, uh, there are many places all over the world where that is happening. Um, typically what will happen in a school setting anyway is that staff will be exposed to some PD around trauma, trauma-informed practice. But it doesn't necessarily lead to what to do when you've got, you know, a a kid who's done something whose behaviour actually is likely to be the result of early traumas or early adverse childhood experiences. So there are, you know, if restorative practice is done right with kindness firmness and compassion, you are less likely to re-traumatise the student responsible Mm. by punishing them, you know, for what they've done. So, Mm. So whether it doesn't matter whether you've done it or you've had it done to you, uh, it's it's a process of problem solving that is deeply curious, non-judgmental, um, collaborative, and incredibly respectful. But it does mean that whoever's facilitating in in the process, whether it's for something small or something large has to be completely clear about um, the nature of the trauma that A, has been triggered by the incident but may have caused the incident in the first place. So a good restorative facilitator needs to be deeply trauma-informed is my argument. And, And there would need to be a conversation, I suppose, with some of the parties before having oh, absolutely. The, the meeting, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Look, prep, uh, look prep, prep, what we really want to do in schools is get people to the point where this is just the way we are with kids. Mm. You know, it's not really whether, it's it's the default position. We don't, we're not defaulting back to retributive, punitive kind of measures. This is This is where we go. We understand that. When something's gone wrong, harm's been done, we need to be able to make sense of it. We need to address the harms both to the person who is responsible for it but also to the people who've been harmed. 
and we make a plan. But the follow-up is critical. So there are three kind of really important aspects of doing this properly. One is quality of the preparation so that it's not a checkbox. Deep relational building during the quality of, you know, during the, uh, you know, the preparatory work. Really good facilitation, which comes from good training. It comes from uh, good uh, professional learning communities with peer mentors or having someone to supervise your practice. But the follow-up is critical as well. So in one of these meetings that works well, there will be a really good plan made. But if we don't follow up on the plan, we can say, or and people do say, well, this is what we decided to do, but he hasn't done it. Mm. You know, so for me it's always, so which bit of the plan did the kid not understand and what's missing from the support we've wrapped around him or her to make sure that they can meet these new expectations around what they have to do to make things right and minimise the likelihood of the behaviour happening again. Mm. So so one of the things around um, the kind of myths is that one restorative process of any sort will fix the behaviour. And that is so far from the truth. It's really about being patient and consistent and persisting uh, you know, over time, because what we're really trying to do is rewire kids' brains. And that is not that is not done with a once-off of anything. Right. We're trying to teach them to think differently. We're trying to teach them to behave differently. We're trying to teach them perspective and empathy and conflict competence skills and trying to teach them that it's safe to be honest. Now, you can't do that, particularly with a a kid who's suffered adverse childhood experience. You can't do that with a once-off. This is just what we do all the time. So, so, I mean, schools are an extraordinary place because we've got them for 12 or 13 years where if we start in the lower part of primary or elementary school and work our way through, you know, the early years and the middle years and then into the middle schooling part and then into senior schooling. If you've had kids who are have been exposed to this relentlessly and with persistence, and I mean gently relentlessly here, not, you know, <laughs> yeah. something that's harsh, but, but they just expect this is the way we do business. When there's a problem, we gather, we talk it through, you know, we take responsibility, we're held accountable. And I have a voice. I even have a voice in deciding what I can do to make things right. So if you imagine that a, that a kid from preschool and even kindergarten right through to the end of high school is exposed to that, you know, we've got, we've got 12 or 13 years of rewiring, which I mean, means... That can make a huge difference. It will make a huge difference. And in the schools that have persisted with this, um, you know, you can even listen, listen, uh, you know, to kids solving their own problems. I remember hearing 
a lovely story from an early adopter in New Zealand who worked in an intermediate school, which is like years eight and eight and nine. Uh, and uh, she she was uh, a very early adopter and a convert, I have to say. And she told this story about how a bunch of girls came to her in the lunch hour and said, uh, excuse me, miss, we, you know, we've got an issue and we think we need a restorative. She said, look, I'm really busy and I will get to you in about 10 minutes, but how, how about you pop over to this room and just sit and wait and I'll be there shortly. By the time she got back, that started the process. They were so used to it. You know, and then I hear other hilarious anecdotes where um, a DP might be walking past a classroom and through an open window this DP might be walking a boy back to his office about something he's done. And the kid says, excuse me, sir, you've missed a question, <laughs> you know, yeah. in the process. So, um, I mean, I'm always asked in training do kids get used to the questions so they can play a game about it? You know, they slick with their answers and I say, look, you just need really good bullshit antenna. And and yeah. if you think they're <laughs> bullshitting, then you call it, say I can hear the words, but, you know, I have no sense that you actually mean what you say. So show mm. me. Yeah. Show me, you know. So the... It's it's such a long road to implement to whole school. Mm. That's the that's the challenging piece because you can't turn a very large ocean going liner around on a threepence or a sixpence or a dollar or a twenty mm. cent piece. It just takes years, mm-hmm. and um, <clears throat> you know I'm just about to write write a a journal uh, article. <clears throat> that'll be published, um, you know, later in in the year about leading in a restorative school. And one of the things that I've noticed over time is that the schools that uh, make more rapid progress in implementation are the ones where their senior leadership team has done some decent training and hasn't just sent off a bunch of people to go and train and come back and cascade it down through the school community. They have a deep, very deep understanding of what it means to be restorative. Mm. It's hugely important. And then then the big challenge, aside from all of the intricacy of rolling it out and where do you start and how do you maintain the standards and so on, it's how do you apply this approach around no blame, but let's talk about the harm that's been done here and let's take responsibility for that. How do you, you know, the application of that within the school community to issues between the adults in school? Well, that's what I was just going to ask. If the leadership has been trained in this, do they then apply it in with staff and not just students? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It just It just becomes... I mean, uh, you know, and it's really about making sure that anyone who's responsible for line managing other staff, so you might be talking about a departmental head or a pastoral mm. leader or a head of house plus DPs and principals, 
Um, and have you, what what benefits have you witnessed for staff using this approach between themselves and with the leadership? Well, because you get to things early, and you mm. keep the small things small, so that they don't escalate to something where there needs to be a formal grievance mm. and an investigation. Because once you once you're in that patch, uh, we're talking about push, pushing people further and further apart with no chance of healing. So, uh, you know, in the schools that I know of that are deeply restorative and have been for a long, a long time, they, they just pounce on things quickly. doesn't mean it's not uncomfortable that it's not, I mean, it's very uncomfortable, Yeah. you know, being, being held accountable for something you've done that's harmed someone else if you're a, a grown-up. Yeah, but we expect kids to do it all the time. You cannot expect to work this way with kids without being treated the same way as, um, you know, as a as a grown up in the school community. Yeah, I, I'm just imagining my own little story here because I've been in that situation where there, it wasn't really dealt with. I had a rift with a staff member who I felt like they undermined me continually, mm-hmm. and. It's hard to talk to other people about it as well as the person who's feeling victimized. Um, it's really uncomfortable and really challenging. And but at the same time, you're right. Like, how can we expect kids to do this authentically if we're not willing to lean into that discomfort ourselves? Exactly. And it's mm. it, you know, um, and I read read somewhere recently, and I can't tell you who the author is, sadly, at this point, but. Um, Disruption in relationships is inevitable, but repair isn't. Mm. So in a restorative school, um, no one, no one is prepared to let stuff fester. As uncomfortable as it is to raise the topic. We're talking about, I think, building conflict competence amongst the adults as well as the kids. That statement's really affected me. I'm, it just feels to me a bit like entropy and how we're all destined to that. But in order to continue to survive and be healthy, it takes a lot of hard work. We've got to really think about our diets and stuff. So it's the same thing here. We have to mm-hmm. really work at our relationships in order not to have them automatically self-destruct. Yeah. Is that sort of what you mean? Yeah, I think, uh, well, I, you know, when when I'm training people in, you know, any aspect of the restorative continuum, I say, look, the attention we have to pay, A, to keeping our foot on the pedal, but also for for noticing the opportunities to keep things, small things small is really like marriage, a long-term mm. relationship you know within a family needs constant attention and you uh ignore it at your peril and do you think that's human nature or do you think that because of the society that we've all been constructed in that that's why that happens well it's a bit of both i think we're all uh our, our sort of neuroscientific biological wiring means that when we disappoint each other, it, it will trigger huge discomfort, which in my body of 
theory is around triggering shame. But shame is like the social alarm that says, hey, thing is something's not right here and it's meant to motivate us to go and make things right with that other person so we're not constantly uncomfortable. But if you're raised in a culture or a family or even, you know, at the moment where division is so huge across our planet and so polarised that uh, it's automatic to make the other person, you know, the son or daughter of Satan. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Instead of finding ways to reach out because in the reaching out and building perspective and being respectful and non-blaming and just curious not furious and being prepared to explore not explode and being prepared to seek to understand before being understood these are all the elements of good relational practice I suppose so my you know from my own perspective 20 I think 1994 we're now 28 years into my restorative journey, I've come from that early kernel of understanding this stuff's got promise through to, oh, my God, now I know why it's got promise. Yeah. Yeah. So what's been your biggest lesson doing this work? It's really about understanding that we need to rewire adults' brains first and if we're hoping to impact on everyone in the school community, then we're talking about culture change. And that is a slow, it's the difference between slow food and fast food. Yeah. And I think there's that element of you can't teach what you don't know, isn't it? That's right. You have to learn how to implement that yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And there, there's such good advice now around how, you know, how to create, um, if you like, an implementation team or a guiding coalition. Who should be on that? Where do you start? Um, you know, ha- how does the work in restorative match the school vision and values and do we see our values in action or is it just something that's on paper in the, in the school diary or you know, parked mm. up on the walls in classrooms. So, you know, one of the one one of the people whose work we've relied on is John Cotter, who's a American guru around um, culture change. And he said that the business about a school's vision and values, uh, or any organisation's um, vision and values, is undercommunicated by the power of ten. So it's not sufficient for the school principal or a DP to stand up at the beginning of a school year and say, brethren, let's remind ourselves we're a restorative school. Every time they open their mouths, every time they make a decision, every time they host a staff meeting, every time they, you know, host a leadership meeting or convene, you know, meetings of any sort, there has got to be, we're doing this because this is what we value. So it, does it need to be explicitly labelled as well as modelled? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Got to talk the talk and walk the talk. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, you know, from the perspective of someone who now chairs Restorative Practices International, which is a membership body, and also, um, you know, helping in, in my own family as a wife and a mother, uh, there are heaps of places where I'm deeply uncomfortable, you know, and I have to push and prod myself to say, Mark, you know what you need to do, don't you? Mm. You just got to go and do it. And so I've got to think it through because when I don't think it through, then I blow it. So I've got to be really careful, you know, to make sure I'm curious, not furious, exploring, not exploding, getting my message across, seeking to understand. You know, it's hard yards. But, oh, my God, to live in harmony just takes enormous weight off anyone's shoulders well yeah yeah and and do you find that it sounds to me like through this work you're bringing it back to your own relationship and family and friends oh absolutely yeah Yeah. and what like gosh that just brings up a lot of potential then doesn't it if you've got a school community that does this really well and all the teachers and all the kids and are embedded in this and I'd assume at some point there'd be parents involvement oh yes absolutely if that whole community then went away and applied that to their personal lives Mm. those kind of strategies and was talking explicitly about them and teaching others that would have quite a ripple effect wouldn't it well that's uh, and that's you know when I think about the being awarded the the medal you know the order of Australia medal I think it's it's about the ripple effect you Mm. know that getting involved as a pioneer with this stuff has has impacted and Look, if I had a dollar for every teacher who has been to training and emailed me a couple of years later to say, Mark, I just have to tell you that that training in restorative practice saved my relationship with my son or my daughter because Mm. I changed the way I dealt with them at home. It's just small stuff. Yes. Indeed. I've got a little tear in my eye right now. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> I'm a sucker for those stories. Mm. I, I'm wondering, so this seems to be like a very big well-being issue. It's, it's a lot to do with relationships. Is there a way that this work impacts on teaching and learning that you've seen? Absolutely. And so from a, uh, you know, if you look at the work of, um, you know, John Hattie, for example, on talking about um, high-performance relationships, it's about high expectations and high high support, which matches exactly what restorative practice seeks to achieve as well. So teachers who get the relationship stuff right, not at the expense of becoming permissive, but you know, but being able to deal with kids so that they engage the students in collaborative decision-making about what they want the classroom to look like, sound like and feel like, what they want from each other, what they want from me who might be their teacher. You know, Mm. so it's a mutual expectation thing. It actually reduces blood pressure for teachers. The stress once, you know, once they've nailed it is... is diminished so it's a stress reduction high stress reduction and high well-being you know piece of work to do 
But well, I got think it, that you've got spells it. it to me. Mm. I could, you know, in the classroom, I think the most stressful thing for me is behavior and the relationships mm. and stuff. So if that stuff's sorted, the actual teaching of the content, that's quite easy in comparison, well, isn't it? Well, you know, that's what our teacher training focuses on, isn't it, is how do we deliver mm. the curriculum. But it's about being relational in our pedagogy. And there's such a thing called relational pedagogy as well. Yeah. And so if you're interested, even if this, you know, I think one of the things I hear all the time when people come to training is, oh, my God, Mark, this this training has named what I've always believed, but I've never had a name for it. Mm. So it's deeply reassuring. Mm. But the, the challenge is really shifting people out of that authoritarian mindset where only the adult voice matters and uh, we don't we don't pay any attention to the needs of a the kid who's done it or the people who've been harmed by it. Mm. My mind's just ticking over. I'm thinking about um, the work that Social Ventures Australia, I think, Stun SVA. They have a toolkit of high impact teaching strategies and which ones are most cost effective and which ones are bring kids forward in their learning by so many months, et cetera. And I, I've always felt like feedback stands out for me as the most cost-effective, easy, you know, approach. And and when you think about if feedback's so effective in children's learning, then it makes sense that relationships would be really key um, in effective teaching and learning. Yeah. Absolutely, because... uh... Because for a teacher and a, and a student to be involved in the feedback process, it has to be curious mm. and it has to be respectful and it has to, like, look, there is nothing more compelling than having someone interested in me. That's very interesting. It's interesting to have someone interested. And if yeah. in the teacher-learner relationship, the teacher is deeply interested in what's going on for the kid, that will come across in feedback sessions plus the whole aspect of the child feeling safe and minimising the likelihood of unnecessary shame. You know, Mm. feedback that's shaming doesn't go anywhere, just causes people to want to kind of opt out. Yeah. So I'm grateful, uh, I'm really grateful for this whole immersion in restorative because it's led me down a kind of neurobiological, sociobiological uh, pathway to understand things like shame and distress and fear and anger and interest and enjoyment. Yeah, how wonderful. Well, it's just been such a gift. Mm. And I just, uh, I want everyone to have it. You know, I find it amazing that you, you call it a gift when actually, you know, you've just done a lot of really hard work. <laughs> um, yeah, but I, but I think um, my interest in this stuff has never diminished, and so while I do bread and butter stuff, I just like any good teacher when you see the light bulb going off on someone's head, whether mm. it's uh, adults in professional development or kids in classrooms, there is nothing like it if you're a teacher, yeah. you know, that you've nailed it, that something has 
something fundamental has shifted inside that brain. That's extraordinary. So I'm very lucky to do this work. I mean, it's just I'm just in my happy place. Oh, you're so privileged. You sound like a brain engineer as well. When you talk <laughs> about things. I love that. So let me. I've got a couple more questions yeah, for you. Sure. I ask everyone these questions. Mm. And uh, so, what is your wish for education? That we move. We can move away from old-fashioned ideas about what teaching is all about. And if uh, and involved in that move, we also have to move away from, you know, stuff that's been caught in a time warp, which is around traditional authoritarian retributive approaches to the things that can go wrong. That's mm. my big wish. And if we give kids those skills and adults and their families those skills, then then that, that's what I think education's all about, is developing a decent human being, you know, mm. who's kind and compassionate and thoughtful and has integrity, you know, who can live a decent life and be a decent neighbour and uh, a decent sibling and a decent parent and grandparent and a good friend and a good mm. and a good professional person it's everywhere yeah it's very holistic isn't it mm. it's okay so what do you think is the potential for education to heal the planet well i worry about the current bundle of adults on this planet because of <laughs> <laughs> because of the divisive and polarising nature of right-wing, left-wing politics at the moment. And mm. That seems to be true wherever. Whatever country we talk about, there is this kind of push apart instead of coming together. And I think uh, if, if education can work on the next generation of people who will become our leaders, then we're less likely to see the polarisation that we have right now. What kind of work do you think needs to be done to achieve that? Uh, it has to focus on uh, teacher training, but teacher training is not sufficient. I think it has to thread its way through leadership development programs, you know, on-the-job professional learning for teachers, coursework, online stuff. But it has to mm. start the adults. But what do they need to be learning? I suppose is my, my big yeah. question. Have to learn. Is it is it exactly what we've been talking about? Yeah, I think so. I think they have to learn about their brains for starters, mm. and how to rewire for good rather than evil. Yeah, uh, and to uh, get people into the space where they realise the central nature of a positive, healthy, robust relationship with the people in your life um, to help you actually enjoy being on this planet. Mm. Well, that's part of it too, just enjoying yeah. being here. Yeah. yeah. Loving 
I mean, we're wired to live in good relationship. We're wired and we're all, we're also got all this capacity in our brains to tell us when things aren't right. So it's, it's being able to interpret uh, the messages that our brain is giving us so we're clear about pain receptors, but we've also got social alarm system in our brain and then we need to know what to do in that yeah, it's like it's like when you're in pain, you go, "Oh, I need to pay attention and clean yeah. the wound or whatever yeah. it is." Whereas it's if right. you're in discomfort, maybe it's the same thing. Then you just, what's what is the message here, and what can I, what action can I take to yeah. help alleviate that? Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. yeah, to make things right, though, not to run away. <laughs> oh yes, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> well, any final words for our listeners at Teacher Healer? Oh God. Look, I think I think just to remember that the world goes round when relationships are working and that simple message needs to be applied in every classroom, on every team, in every leadership uh, a leadership team that's driving a school. Mm. It's re- a, wow. relation, a deeply relational approach to problem-solving. Amazing. Well, I'll take this opportunity, Margaret, to say thank you for your service and for everything that you've done for the education system and for the country and for kids everywhere who have grown into adults now probably. Um, it's just a wonderful honour to to have this time with you and, yeah, you've done an amazing job. Like I knew about your work long before I heard about who you were. So, um, that's a legacy that will live a long time, long, long, long time. And, you know, well done and congratulations and thank you. Thank you, Janine. And, look, um, I so appreciated the fact that you've reached out and asked me to um, rabbit on about everything that matters to me. So thank you. I've, I've had a lovely time this morning. Oh, good. Well, I will chat to you again and wishing you all the best. Excellent. Thanks for listening to the Teacher Healer podcast. Find more episodes and information at www.teacherhealer.com. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please rate us or refer us to your friends and colleagues. And if you care about saving the world from plastic, click on the Zero Co link in the show notes to learn what you can do to help. 